Welcome back to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Um, as always, I'm, I always say I'm so excited for this episode, but I am excited for this episode. Um, today we are exploring innovation and adaptability, emotional intelligence. We're going to cover all of those topics. I am interviewing Salima Vellani. She is an award-winning innovation strategist, serial entrepreneur, and a recognized authority on inclusive innovation. For over 12 years, Salima has led Fortune 500 corporations, startups, and international finance institutions to the next stage of growth and innovation. She is the chief innovation strategist at Innovazing, which helps companies drive innovation through design thinking methodologies and agile approaches. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here. And I and I love her her accent. She's Canadian and we all know that <laughs> Canadians are better than Americans. <laughs> They're nicer. So, you know, there's that. Um, I understand that you're also an adjunct professor and wear many hats. So tell me more about that and and just overall what it is that you do in your words. I know I know I read your bio, but it's always great to just hear it from the person. Yeah, thank you so much. So yeah, I wear many hats, but I can say ultimately I'm a problem solver and I love uh, I love change. I love navigating change using innovation and using collaborative approaches where we're co-creating, uh, you know, change, whether it's with organizations, whether it's helping people reinvent themselves. Uh, we're in a world right now where, you know, we're in the middle of a reskilling revolution, as we heard at the, the World Economic Forum just uh, last week in Davos. And people are in the need to constantly reinvent themselves. And so I help different people, whether it's, uh, you know, helping or organizations navigate change, whether they're technology companies, economic development organizations, financial institutions. I also help uh, people just, you know, we're all individuals at the end of the day. And I think it's uh, really helping people be their, you know, maximize their potential and be their authentic selves. Yeah. And you're also in a, prof you're a professor, right? Where are you currently teaching at? Yeah. So I teach at Johns Hopkins University, their school for advanced international studies. And I teach design thinking and entrepreneurship, which are fairly new. We've only been doing them the past couple of years. And it's pretty cool to see how uh, students, graduate students are able to learn about, uh, you know, how to be an entrepreneur, build the entrepreneurial mindset and uh, use design thinking to solve business challenges. Yeah. So when we did our pre-interview um, last week, I think it was, we talked about what led you to working at the World Bank. And it was such a fascinating story to me and really an example of adaptability. So can you tell the listeners more about that and how you ended up at the World Bank? Yeah, sure. So it was interesting because uh, just a year before I went to the World Bank, I had pretty much given up on working in international development. You know, that was what I started my career doing. I said, you know, I'm going to study international development. I lived abroad in the Bra in the Dominican Republic and Brazil, and I was very passionate about, you know, how do we uh, solve some of these issues around? Uh, how do we, you know, build more economic growth? How do we alleviate poverty? And I worked, you know, between evaluation operations. I've done so much different work. Um, however, I, I sort of almost gave up a year before I entered the World Bank because. I had worked for some other organizations and I was just, you know, I felt like I was actually further from the impact, even though I thought working at a higher level would have more impact. But I got kind of stuck in, you know, the bureaucracy of large organizations. And I said, well, sometimes for me to have the biggest impact, I need to be closer to the people. And it's interesting because in my career, I've really paved my own path. And so I was able to do that and attracted like, you know, once I did that inner work, when I 
had given up and I started doing other things that weren't that aligned with myself. And I tried different paths and my life ended up crashing. You know, my house burned down. I got laid off from a couple of yes, jobs. This is what we were talking about on the phone. And I was like, what? I, I can't like when I think about my house getting burned down, I'm like, oh, my pictures, my furniture, my clothes, like overcoming that. And then, you know, and then that led you to just it feels like so many other opportunities yeah, so I think when we're not living our life in alignment, which is interesting because I think we're constantly evolving. So something might feel aligned and then all of a sudden it's not or you start to feel a little stuck or you know you're not maximizing your purpose or your potential. And I had ignored that inner voice that was telling me, Salima, you're not doing what you're meant to be doing, but I was limited by my own experiences, so I didn't really know what else to do. And I thought I had to climb this like corporate ladder and uh, you know, grow within one place and I don't know, a lot of the things that I was told in, you know, when I was in school, like you need to grow, you know, go up this corporate ladder and stay this in one organization for a long time. It really didn't feel aligned. And so when I left, eventually I was like, enough of this bullshit. <laughs> I uh, like, mic drop. <laughs> yeah, it was actually my side hustle that motivated me and actually led me to another opportunity. And but at the end of the day, none of that stuff was really aligned. Like it was sort of like there was sometimes, you know, sometimes you have these like projects or, or you know, hustles or uh, businesses, jobs, whatever it is that sort of helps you get to the next stage. Yeah. And they kind of help you in that transition. And I went through that process of trying different things. But at the end of the day, like I was distracting myself. I was it's overworking. like frosting. <laughs> You're getting to the next layer. Exactly. <laughs> and I was overworking myself. I didn't take a single vacation day. I was you know, just obsessed with my work, trying to get results and um, ignoring just spending time with myself and being myself and just be okay with being. I was like, you know, when I wasn't working, I was going out. I was like salsa dancing. I was going out with friends and I was just you know, exercising and traveling. And I wasn't really just spending time with myself. And eventually my life crashed and I pretty much lost everything that I had. And it was really interesting because when that happened, I was on a blank slate and I was like, okay, thankfully, like I had, you know, had it had a couple of coaches that had helped me that year. So it was, I already knew that this is a blessing in disguise and yeah. I'm not doing the work I'm meant to be doing. I'm not living the life I'm supposed to be living. And I had to start from, I had to start again. I had to redesign my life and reboot. Yeah. It like presented an opportunity for you to completely just reinvent yourself and do whatever you want. Exactly. Like out of, yeah, out of that craziness. It feels like we're at this place where our parents journey is changing because that's not that that is no longer our generation's journey like the corporate ladder thing well it may be you know appetizing to some so many people I know are doing their own thing starting their own businesses and stuff like that how do you feel like that's just changing the structure of the workforce because I know that that's a lot of the work that you do is teaching adaptability yes and that's something that I had to practice was adapt and uh, like you mentioned before, like entering the World Bank was doing something that I really loved. And I didn't realize that sometimes you can create opportunities and you can actually job craft. You can, you know, pave your own path. You can pitch opportunities. You don't have to fit into a box. And so speaking of adaptability, yeah, like it's it's because what you did at the World Bank, like talk talk more about that. Sure. What you did was <laughs> completely different from what you had done before. So very much so. And so I was, you know, tired of just being behind a computer and um, doing work that wasn't going anywhere. 
And so when I got the gig at the World Bank, it was really just me, you know, it was actually from just having coffee with someone who I knew and was like, you know, I was actually displaced at the time. And it was just, it was very interesting because I was displaced and my parents actually, you know, had fled East Africa in the 1970s and had come to Canada with $100 in their pocket. So like with nothing. And then I was, you know, displaced when my house had the fire and I went off to like India to Bali to Thailand I went on an eat pray love yes. trip to discover I was just myself gonna say eat pray love <laughs> yeah yeah so I went off to do the self-discovery because I'm like you know there's more work I need to do I thought I did some personal development work I guess it's not over yet it's never over it's ongoing but you have bouts of you know different periods where it's more intense than other times in life and so it was a time where I really had to go explore and uh do that inner work and just be with myself and be, you know, did a lot of yoga, meditation and like mindfulness stuff. And I don't know. Yeah. So what was, so what was the job that you were doing at the world bank though? You were doing some stuff with water and. Oh yeah. So at the world bank, basically they hired me when they saw my out of the box thinking and they were like, wow, she's like, she knows SEO. She knows digital marketing. She knows how to like use keyword searches and just do, she knows how she's very resourceful and she's very creative. And so they were like, well, we need an out of the box thinker that can come and that's not biased and that can come solve this problem of food insecurity. You know, we have this food insecurity problem right now, especially in the Middle East and in Africa. And we also have this refugee crisis where we have, you know, so many Syrian refugees that uh, can't grow food in the land. They can't, uh, yeah, they can't plant, they can't work. Uh, you know, they can't be employed in many of the countries they were, you know, they were nomading a bit too. And actually on average, uh, the statistic was, I think, uh, refugees on average live in 17 different places before they actually settle down. And, uh, you wow. know, in a lot of these places, there is water scarcity. They don't have access to, like, electricity oftentimes, especially in the camps. Um, and so how do they really grow food and, and get the nutrition that they needed? Because, you know, they were drinking sugar juices and cookies and, you know, getting donations and stuff. But they weren't actually eating nutritious food. And so we're like, how do we solve this problem? And a lot of people that are experts in agriculture might just think about soil and how do we you know, do more farming and, and that sort of thing. How do we innovate when it comes to like machinery? But at the end of the day, if you don't have arable land, you don't have soil, you don't, you know, you have, you know, a harsh climate, uh, you don't have like basic resources to, you know, especially water, you, soil agriculture, traditional agriculture, it can be very water intensive. And so, I looked at everything from 3D printing. I uh, looked at hydroponics, aquaponics. I met all kinds of people, went to New York to like Food Loves Tech and met Gary Vaynerchuk and Jose Andres. And just, it was really cool. I tried crickets. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, did all kinds of stuff to understand like what, how can we solve this food insecurity problem without using soil? And it was actually hydroponics. And I did a bunch of research on that. And we ended up going to Israel, to Palestine, to Djibouti. We talked to the refugees. We visited the camps. We looked at like the, you know, what's going on in technology. Um, we went to Palestine. It was really, really interesting to learn by actually going to the field and empathizing with the people. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like all of, it sounds like your job there was literally every single piece of your life. Like you put everything together, you know, with your parents' experience and like you having to figure shit out in your own life. It's like it was packaged up in this job, like, okay, universe. <laughs> it handed you this job, like, I'm, I'm going to give you all the skills, you know, you have them now, now go to work. Um, so that brings me to, you know, we've heard a lot about the importance of emotional intelligence over the last couple of decades, which sounds like something that you have a lot of, um, and your ability to adapt. However, 
<clears throat> I understand from you that we're increasingly hearing more about AQ becoming the next big thing, which is the adaptability quotient. Can you tell me more about this and why AQ is important in the workplace and in life in general? Sure. So adaptability quotient, it's very interesting because it's not a new concept. This has been around for a couple of decades, actually. And there's been a lot of focus on emotional intelligence. You know, we need to have soft skills, human skills, people skills, etc. However, I think before you can really build people skills, you really need to have self skills. You need to have self mastery. You need to have uh, the ability to, to manage yourself, which is, you know, still part of emotional intelligence, but it's very focused on the adaptability, you know, being able to adapt to different circumstances, especially when you're facing adversity, especially in today's world where we're constantly in flux and change and there's uncertainty. And how do you really navigate that? And I think that's incredibly important to be able to adapt, uh, whether you're you know, in the workforce, uh, you're in a job that requires you to change tasks, switch tasks and uh, learn fast. And I think it's uh, being able to, you know, be in the be able to constantly learn, be able to like, you know, embrace lifelong learning and constantly absorb content such as like podcasts, and yeah. audiobooks, uh, going to conferences, talking to people that are outside of your comfort zone. I think it's really, really important yeah. to do that, to be able to adapt. Yeah. I'm, I'm a journalist, journalist by trade. And so I'm obsessed with like learning more. Like last night I was watching the goop and they were doing um, a show on psychedelics and how that helps like with depression. I'm like, Oh, I could apply these questions to my, my podcast. So I feel like I'm, you know, just naturally my personality lends itself to be sort of adaptable. But if your personality isn't like that, how do you teach yourself that? And or how can employers help teach their employees to be more adaptable? Because I think it is important skill to learn to have. Yeah. So that's a very interesting question. Uh, and for me, you know, it was always very natural because I think because of the life that I lived, I also always was very curious about things. Uh, and just like you mentioned earlier with, uh, you know, my consulting role at the World Bank, it's interesting because I was able to introduce human-centered design or, or, you know, bring more design thinking to the work without really, uh, without even, before I even knew what design thinking was, I was already practicing it. And it was very, very interesting because that requires you to have that innovative mindset. It starts by having that innovative mindset, being able to think in a creative way. And it happens when you're able to feel like you're in a safe space to be able to do so. And I think that's why in my you know, previous roles, uh, before my you know, Eat, Pray, Love, Life Change journey uh, transition, I never felt that I was in a safe space. I think I also lacked some confidence. So, so do you think it's employers need to create a safe space where employees can learn? So is it like, do you feel like it's trainings or what, like, what do you, how do you, how do you think that employers can facilitate that? Yeah. So I think that it starts from the leadership and that leaders need to model that sort of mindset where people should be able to adapt and be flexible, where people feel safe to, to get out of their comfort zone and to fail and creating a culture where failure is okay. And it's part of learning and it's actually part of innovation. And I think that, uh, yeah, like it, I think the future of learning is also changing very rapidly. And so it's not just trainings and yeah. all of that. People learn very differently and people have different learning styles. And so I think having different types of uh, ways to engage, whether it's integrating it at, like, you know, at the core level with uh, the way you conduct meetings and how you really listen to the people on your team and understand what will make them tick or uh, for example, like Google lets you spend 20% of your time on, you know, a passion project or, or something that, you know, you're really interested in. And there's just different companies have different things because 
they all have different cultures. So I think it's really understanding the people and what they value and how do you really motivate them. And it starts from the leader. It starts from, you know, allowing them to. Fueling curiosity. Exactly. Yeah. So creating an environment that fuels curiosity. Exactly. So how do you, how can you kind of self-teach that though? Is it just, is it in the same manner of just like doing things that fuel your curiosity? And I know that it's easy to like scroll on Netflix. I, I try to check my screen time because I'm like, holy shit, I've been on here for two hours. So like re kind of adjusting the time that I'm doing those kind of mundane tasks and being like, oh, well, maybe I'll read a book or do something else or just sleep or, you know, something that's, a, you know, gives you something back a little bit more. But is it just like kind of searching for those knowledge opportunities? Yeah. So I think it's a matter of it's interesting because sometimes the leaders or the, the people that allow can allow these opportunities to take place sometimes don't know about them. For example, sometimes there's been like conferences I want to attend and I'm like, oh, I don't think I'll be able to, you know be able to go to this because I don't think they'll like let me and sometimes it's just creating the culture and the environment where people can ask for what they want and uh and then you know all of a sudden like for today I was like oh like you know I went to this event a few years ago that I really liked you know food loves tech and I wish we could go to more of those and you know my my client was like of course you know you're welcome to go to those things just if you ever find anything just ask and I'm happy to make it happen and you know we should definitely be constantly learning and updating ourselves on some of the technologies we're exploring and I think sometimes we're either afraid to ask because that culture, that environment of that safe space isn't there. And I think it's just like a lot of team meetings aren't very innovative. And so you have to figure out a way to bring in some of that like ideation and having people speak out, you know, speak up and, and be themselves and just asking questions. I think curiosity comes from asking good questions. And oftentimes we're told that, you know, listening is important and listening is incredibly important. You know, there's listening, there's, I think it's one of the most important 21st century skills, but I think also asking questions is something that's part of listening because half of listening is being able to ask questions. Yeah. And as someone that is, if you're looking for a job or, you know, unemployed or wherever you, where you, wherever you are in the job seeking phase, I feel like it's good for people to align themselves with uh, an organization that aligns with their values. So asking those questions in interviews, what do you like, do you have recommendations for people in terms of that? Like if they want to work for an organization that's more adaptable and, and is open to, you know, allowing for different opportunities and growth and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that that's an interesting question because oftentimes in interviews they you know, they have an interview guide and then you ask a question and then it's sort of like, oh, how would you solve this problem? And then the it's action like super awkward. <laughs> yes. And it's, it's interesting because I think they should test people in different ways. To, mm-hmm. And I think you learn a lot from people when you get people, when you either put people on the spot and actually see how they do outside of their comfort zone. I think that's when you really see how they react, how resilient they are, how adaptable they are, how creative they are. And so I think asking questions that they wouldn't expect. I often do that. I often ask people when I interview them, uh, you know, can you, you know, can you outline the objectives? Like, why do you want to work for me? And what are your goals? And then based on that, I also craft other questions, but I'm also in the moment able to, you know, spontaneously uh, ask questions based on the conversation and dig deeper into certain things. When I, I watch their body language, I try to understand what will really motivate them. And I also observe, like I look at how they communicate, I uh, observe their writing skills and their emails, do they follow up, what's their etiquette like, 
there's certain areas you can help people be better in, but there's certain areas where you know, like, is this going to be a good fit or not? And I think that's often where we fall off is uh, we often think about just questions and answers and not so much observing how people truly are. Yeah. Um, so speaking of adaptability, I think that there's a stigma around older employees not being able to adapt as quickly. And let's face it, we are all going to be older employees one day. And so we could fall into this category. And I think it's interesting because in the firm that I work for now, I'm seeing the younger employees come in and I'm like, oh God, they know all of these things. And I'm like, am I becoming the older employee (laughs) now that I'm nearing 40? Um, Do you feel like this is an accurate stereotype? And what can people who are getting older to ensure that they remain adaptable? Yeah, I think that everyone has value in our workforce, regardless of their age. I think it's their mindset and their willingness to learn. And their willingness to adapt. And I think it depends on what you value. There are certain people that value stability and they're fine in their comfort zone. And there are certain organizations that are a great fit for that. However, I think that uh, constantly, yeah, like learning, constantly learning. I think that you can, you'll never be obsolete if you're constantly learning and you're figuring out a way to reinvent yourself and rebrand yourself. It's really, really necessary, especially with the way Things are changing today with technology and, and the types of jobs are often, you know, with the augmented age, which is coming up now with AR and VR, we're seeing a lot of skills that are either going to be augmented and they're going to be more and more important, like human skills, like, you know, sales, there's going to be more and more sales jobs and jobs with human interaction. So those jobs are going to be more valuable and people that have those skills are going to do very well. There's also other, you know, skills that are going to be automated, especially technology skills, and it's still important to have them. However, a lot of them will be automated. So people that are in, you know, more technical careers, maybe they're seeing, especially we see some of the, you know, older generations that are sort of intimidated by the millennials and now Gen Z, and it's just a different way of thinking and doing things. And I think that in certain fields, you have to figure out, well, is it time for me to move from like a technical career to becoming a manager? Or should I become a consultant? Or should I be a professor? Uh, what, how can I you know, wear the hats that I need to do to motivate me, but also give the most value? Okay. Um, so I think people often have a fear of executing an idea when the end result hasn't been fully fleshed out. I know particularly for this podcast, it was kind of a very random thing that happened. And so um, people, like so many people have asked me, oh, so, you know, what direction is this going? Like, where do you want this to go? Do you want to get advertisers? Do you want to do this? Do you want to do this? And I'm like, I'm just enjoying it. Like, I just want to see what happens. And, And I feel like it's developing nicely. But I will be okay with whatever outcome because I'm enjoying the process of learning and and doing this. But I think that that fear can restrain people um, when they don't fully know what's going to happen with their a business idea or something. Um, you know, I think when we think of it, some examples: Uber re- revolutionized taxi driving services um, and sub- suburbs across the, um, America, and then again with Uber Eats. So they went from you know, picking, you know, taxi service essentially to delivering food. So they probably didn't have that idea when they started and then turned it into that. And then with Apple, with, you know, computers, and then now the iPhone, they're releasing that, you know, you, you provided some of these examples, so they're not my own. (laughs) (laughs) I won't try to take ownership of her, of her content, but they pivoted and are, you know, adaptable. And these are, you know, obviously huge companies with massive workforces, but I think that on a macro level, 
or rather on a micro level, they provide these like macro, macro examples or whatever. And so when someone is starting a new business, how do you guide the development process? Do they have to have the whole idea fleshed out? No, <laughs> I think <laughs> thank <that's>, you. Amen. <laughs> so this is where I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs fail. Uh, and this is because they think that they have to have things perfect. Uh, they often aren't fully aware of their strengths or they aren't acting on their strengths and they want to do everything because you are wearing many hats as an entrepreneur. And I know that, you know, you're, whether you're bootstrapped or whatever, there's always ways to do things. I started my first company, a translation company when I was in Italy. I couldn't get a job. I was living in the South of Italy. There I love was this. How old Greek, were you? 22. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> there was, you know, the Greek crisis. I was a woman in the South of Italy and, you know, I learned a little bit of Italian, but I was not going to work as a bartender. So I was yeah. like, you know what, what do I have? I have, I didn't have internet. So it's like, you know what, I went and got some, I went to find some dial up internet and I, this was back in 2009. <laughs> The internet and had, noise. <laughs> and I had just moved from Brazil, which this moving to Italy was totally unanticipated. Yeah. And it was interesting because I was like, well, how am I going to survive here? And I had my own skills, which were my language skills. You know, I spoke some Spanish or I spoke Spanish pretty well. I had, you know, Portuguese, some French. I was like, well, I guess what I can do is translation work. And online, there was a space for that. You know, there was uh, there were like these freelancer platforms where you can find gigs online. So I went on to actually Elance at the time and started getting gigs as a translator. And it was very interesting because what turned out as like a $60 website translation project turned into a six-figure business within six months. And it was amazing how you could just make money online when I was like 22 years old living in, Italy, in the south of Italy yeah. and just like, you know, I'd have my gelato and pizza and all my fun things in Italy at night. And during the day I was doing translation work and I realized like I was very good at the proposals, getting clients. I was very good at, I didn't actually enjoy that much doing the translation work itself, but I was really excited about getting new business, getting clients, managing that communication, which I think I was able to do well because of my writing skills and my communication skills. And, and I think we also entered a very good market at a very good time. You know, my business partner at the time and I, we were dominating that. Like we couldn't even afford translation software. So we were like, well, whenever we get a project, we're just going to hire translators and manage those translators and have, you know, quality control along the way through like samples and, you know, wow. making sure the clients And you were, were 22? I was 22. And it's that interesting because it was through experimentation. And, you know, sometimes we have to take these small steps very, you know, want to fail cheaply. You want to fail fast. Yes. Like I learned very quickly that I can't do English to Spanish or English to Portuguese or English to French because those are not my native languages. And we, we, what made us unique or what differentiated us was the fact that we provided human translation and all of our translators were native speakers of the languages they were translating into. And so it was very interesting how I created this translation business and, you know, with my business partner at the time. And it was literally just, you know, online and there was the demand a lot of companies were looking to go global they were buying their dot you know their dot pt dot fr dot es and at the time google translate wasn't what it is it wasn't yeah it wasn't what it is now so and what happened with the business yeah so we started to see that you know it grew very quickly but yeah. at the same time that online freelancer space was also growing very quickly a lot mm -hmm. of people started working online and that reduced oftentimes the quality of the work, uh, which didn't affect us too much initially, but it was the fact that we were now competing with a lot of other translators that were a lot cheaper than us because they were in, they were independent translators. We were an agency. And so it was very interesting because there was a lot more competition, even though we were number one for like Italian translation and some mm -hmm. categories. Uh, but yeah, a lot more competition, which drove the prices down. A lot of uh, businesses, like the you know the companies that would hire us, they were like not so you know they weren't able to get the quality oftentimes from that big pool of translators. And so we started to see that it was time to to exit. 
but it was still a hot time. So we were like, well, before it's too late, let's you know think about our exit strategy. While it's still doing well, let's exit because we also saw Google Translate was about to start doing website translation and it was changing very, very quickly. So we sold the company and that's when I was like, well, I need to experience working a full-time job in international development. I just got my grad school degree. I felt like I wanted to do something else. I'm a very project type person. I love uh, solving problems starting and ending something and you know being able to get the results and move on to something new and so it felt like it was the time the right time to to leave and do something else that would spark my creativity yeah. so your your ability to kind of take a leap and not be afraid fit a need for that time so i feel like you know it really ended up working out because you weren't too afraid and it's like the example of like, okay, you didn't know what was going to happen. It massively grew and then you sold it. <laughs> exactly. And so, so when, it's like, it doesn't always have to like, it doesn't always have to go on forever. I think that, you know, some chapters are short, some chapters are longer. Exactly. Um, oh, I can add one more thing to that. Yes, no, definitely. Yeah. So I think we have to think about, you know, are we building a startup? Are you trying to create change and be able to get acquired eventually? Or are you trying to build a business? And I think we have to think about if we are building a business, how much are we working in our business versus on our business? And I think there are a lot of people that are trying to follow their passion and or do their own thing. And, they, and it's different because in emerging markets, you see this more as a necessity sort of thing where... They need to make change in their country or, you know, they, they have to solve a problem. Whereas here, it's not so much problem driven. It oftentimes is mindset sort of, I want to do my own thing. I don't want to work in an organization. And you see that a lot. But a lot of people are looking to have that autonomy, that flexibility, but they're not ready to run a whole business. Yeah. And so then we see a lot of failure because I get this a lot and I always tell people this is like they're focused on a lot of people are focused on the solution. They're like, oh, this is my offering. This is what I want to provide. And I'm going to spend the next year developing my logo, and my website and brand this whole thing. And I'm just like, no, go out and talk to people. Go get customers. Go mm -hmm. get one customer. Because they don't really care what your logo looks like. <laughs> Not at all. Like Websites don't matter as much anymore, yeah. depending on the industry. But, you know, go get a client. And once you have that client, you'll learn and you'll figure out how you want to, you know, specialize or what's your niche. And, and maybe that's not what you want to do. Maybe it is what you want to do. But over time, even if you do have some clients or customers, whatever you do at the beginning is probably going to be different six months to a year from now. Yeah. I think that that's a really, really valuable lesson. And I think too, that people, when you're telling people about the business, they'll ask you a hundred questions. And sometimes those questions are beneficial, but then it, I think it puts a little paranoia because you're like, I don't have all the answers, you know, like with this podcast, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I like how it's going now. I don't, I can't tell you anything else. Um, so that leads me to one of my last questions. So in Western society, there is specifically in Western society. Um, I feel like there's just a constant need for growth. Like, I think capitalism has kind of forced people to feel like they need to grow, 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 grow. And I think that for me, like, I, I sometimes I enjoy just like kind of just being flat and just enjoying like, um, I don't know. Do you think that this can have a negative effect? Because I think that I, shouldn't you enjoy sometimes and just like admire all of the work that you've done? Do we have to constantly be in a growth mindset? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that growth is important and I think it's important to be constantly learning, whether you're absorbing content or you're spending time with yourself alone and, yeah. you know, the mountains or something. Uh, I think that uh, it's important to have a growth mindset. Now, I think that we don't always have to be doing that because we're 
you know, feeling like we're not good enough or that, uh, you know, we just don't have the skills we need to have. I think it, it depends on how you define growth. And for me, growth is both, you know, obviously professional as well as personal. It's, it's a very interesting word because for me, it's that feeling, it's more of a feeling than a word for me. It's like that feeling of knowing that, uh, I'm, you know, feel gratified. I feel that, um, like, I'm sorry, it feels for me, it's a feeling. It feels that I'm becoming a better person but not because I'm not. It's because I want to be a better person and contribute more to this world. I want to grow professionally. I want to grow personally. I want to be a better partner. I want to be a better friend, a better family member. And I think it's really just about, you know, noticing how you feel and whether you feel like you're in a state of just, you know, you just want to chill and, and yeah. you want to just enjoy life a bit. Uh, you want to, you know, just go on a trip and, uh, not, I mean, I think that it, we're just, we are constantly growing. I don't think we're always aware when we are growing. Like for me, so maybe it's not, it's growing, but not necessarily doing. Exactly. So it's you being. can, yeah, just like you can be and still be like growing because you're like growing and like your peace. Exactly. <laughs> I'm and not doing anything. <laughs> exactly. And I think that that's important. And for me, travel sped up a lot of my growth because I was constantly you know, absorbed and, and integrating into different cultures. And so I wasn't even aware of it at the time. But I think a lot of that, a lot of my cultural awareness developed just from being in different cultures. And so it didn't have to even say I'm learning a language or something. It was literally just being in a different context. And I think that's important to just be open. That willingness to learn, I think, is important, whether you define it as growth, uh, that feeling that you, you're just in that being state. Yeah. Okay, so my last question for you, for listeners, what would be maybe two or three tips that you have for people that are trying to become trying to become more adaptable? Yeah, so I would say that you want to start small and fail fast and learn fast. Uh, and I think that it's important to whether you're trying to become an entrepreneur or you want to explore a project like a podcast or write a book or just do something different in life. I think that, you know, start small. Uh, I think that sometimes we get overwhelmed when we try to do something that's so big in scope, so large in scope that it almost overwhelms us. So I think yeah. it's important to find a place where you feel in flow. So whether it's uh, starting a podcast, like a lot of people are like, oh, I love interviewing people. But I hate, you know, the editing side or like having to deal with all the technical stuff. And so I always say, like, just with my translation business, always delegate the things that feel overwhelming to you or find a way to. Yes, you know, I hired an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, i <I'll check. laughs> Exactly. So and, and a lot of people might not have the resource to do this, but there's always ways to be scrappy mm -hmm. and, and there's ways to make that happen. I think yeah. we have to not have those limiting beliefs because I started out with nothing oftentimes and built things from scratch. And it really just took creative, creative thinking and, you know, Googling things. It took talking to people and just testing things. You never and you know. you can learn on YouTube anything. You can learn anything on YouTube. Okay. Thank you so much for being here. This was absolutely wonderful. I feel like time has flown by. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you can find Salima at salimavalani.com. Her name is S-A-L-E-E-M-A. Did I spell that yeah. right? Oh, there's one thing I forgot to mention. Oh, yes. Okay. And one more thing is yes. that I'm actually in the process of writing my book. It will oh, be published. Yes. Yes, she's writing a book. I'm so excited to read it. It's called Innovation Starts with I. Okay. And it will be out later this year. It's going to be published in the summer of 2020. Uh, so okay. I'm really excited about it. And it has a lot of my own personal stories as well as 
you know, insights from the 100 plus people that I've interviewed, including Alex Osterwalder and Steve Blank and some really great thinkers as well as, you know, entrepreneurs and, and Fortune 500 leaders, just a lot of different insights from different domain experts. Awesome. Thank you. Yes. So very exciting. Um, so you can find her website at salimavalani.com and then you can find her um, at salimavalani for Instagram as well. Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Facebook. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Um, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and follow me on Instagram at Tall Hungry Girl. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.